Okay, and welcome back to the Future Ear Radio podcast. I guess this is considered season two. Um, it's uh, it's great to be back. I, I'm, I might be a little rusty. Um, this is the first time I've done a Future Ear podcast in the last like three or four months since having the twins. So uh, who better to have on than another fellow uh, new parent herself than Dr. Kathleen Wallace. So thanks so much, Kathleen, for being here today. Uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me, Dave. Um, I'm looking forward to this conversation. I think it'll be a, a fun one. Um, so I am Kathleen Wallace. I'm an audiologist based in New York City. Um, I've been here for my whole career. I also went to grad school here. I'm an alum of the uh, CUNY Grad Center. Um, I am mostly, fo- I have a couple of different roles right now. I guess I'll start with that. I'm wearing <laughs> a couple of different hats, staying uh, pretty busy. So I am an adjunct professor at my alma mater at the CUNY Graduate Center. I am the head of provider education at Tuned, a new telehealth company. And uh, then I have launched my own practice where I'm seeing patients right now, just virtually, and then adding a concierge element um, in 2023, trying to pace myself and not get too exhausted. (laughs) And um, what interests me most about audiology, um, well, first of all, I come from a non-traditional background. I was a music major undergrad um, and worked a couple of different jobs before getting my way back to um, grad school and getting my AUD. But what has always excited me most about audiology and has been um, the biggest driver and motivator, I think, in my career so far is how much work there's left to do for people with hearing loss in this country, how small our profession is and how much impact each provider could have to the future of the profession. I think that's super exciting that we can really move the needle in exciting ways and that it's desperately needed because of the public health epidemic, really of hearing loss, and then uh, really focusing on changing like the public's perception of hearing healthcare, the role of an audiologist, and educating them so they can be more informed consumers. So that's sort of where I've been operating recently is um, on those fronts. Awesome. Well, thanks for the uh, for the introduction. I'm, I'm really excited to kick off this, uh, this next 100 episodes with you, um, because I think that you really represent the ethos of what I'm like kind of trying to get to the bottom of within this podcast is like, what is the future of hearing healthcare look like? And um, what's the role of the professional in that? And I think that like you've, you mentioned a bunch of things there about, you know, this is a really large problem. So there's tons and tons of demand, but I think that the way in which we've facilitated or been conducive to that demand as an industry and then for the professional is becoming a little bit antiquated. And so I think that you're very much a forward thinker in like how maybe things can be done in a different way, both in terms of the facilitation of the care, but just the overall thought of like how a private practice of the future can look, you know? And so as somebody that's young, kind of I wouldn't say you're just getting started out, but you know, you're in your early thirties. So it's like, you're, you're, you are kind of embarking on, I think like the entrepreneurial phase of your career. And so I, I'm going to be really excited to dive into this conversation and, and hear about like how things are going today, but why don't we go back to the start? That's where I, I like to 
uh, usually start with is just to kind of get a sense of like, okay, so you were a music major. So obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, you have a passion for music, but what was the course that led you to audiology? Um, well then I'm going to have to rewind even more. So first of all, I went to, um, I went to Dartmouth undergrad and I went, um, to play lacrosse there. Um, and I, I played, uh, division one lacrosse there and I ended up getting a, uh, season, a career ending concussion. So I stopped playing lacrosse and I switched majors and I became a music major because you couldn't do both, but I had always been a musician my whole life. So it was, um, sort of a welcomed pivot to switch over to that. So I've always liked sound. I've always been well-versed in, in music and instruments. I played the trombone. That was my specialty. Very unusual, fun fact. Um, <laughs> but what really like uh, part of, brought that into audiology of really channeling music was more so that as a kid, I went to speech-language pathology for um, nine years for my R's, S's, T's, L's, and THs, which I, um, you know, I have a TikTok. Uh, apparently, I have a very interesting way of talking um, where people always think that I am not from Long Island because I don't have the Long Island accent. So the speech background paired with the music background brought me to communication disorders. And then really from there, um, I liked the audiology side of it more so um, then the speech side of it just seemed far more applicable to my skill set, population of preference. Um, I liked that it was a little bit more of uh, like a diagnostic mystery usually. And I did like this. Um, I got hints of this public health problem. And public health has always been something that's interested me, where this is like a big picture um, problem that we need to to solve in this country of, okay, there are so many people with hearing loss and how can we rethink how to deliver care and get um, essentially how to, can audiologists reach more ears? Um, so that was a very exciting challenge from the beginning for me that really hooked me. I think that's, it's always interesting to hear how people came to this, you know, space and um, having that firsthand experience with like an SLP yeah. and then it kind of like all leads to the communication disorder sides of things. So you go to undergrad at Dartmouth and then you decide that you're going to go to graduate school. Um, and so why, why CUNY? So CUNY is, um, for people that don't know the city university of New York, it's the only graduate program in New York city. And being from Long Island, I always thought about getting back to um, the New York area. I, I hadn't lived in the city until that point, and, I, and now I haven't left, and I don't know when I will leave if I ever do leave. Um, but the CUNY Graduate Center is really, it is very um, prolific in the in the metropolitan area. It's, it's very competitive to get into. Uh, it is um, a very interesting setup where it's a consortium. So you're taking classes at uh, Brooklyn College, the Graduate Center and Hunter College. And the faculty are um, at that point, some really heavy hitters in the profession. There's been some retirements since then, um, but literally the people that write the textbooks that we all know, you know, Barbara Weinstein, Carol Silverman, Shlomo Silman, like some really big people in the profession um, so the opportunity to be in, you know, such a diverse um, city like New York City and really getting a, that cultural experience and working in healthcare there paired with those 
professionals um, was an opportunity I really wanted to take advantage of. Yeah. So when you started at uh, CUNY, um, what was your initial sort of take on audiology? Um, were you drawn to any one facet of the the scope, if you will? What stands out in your mind in those first formative years um, within grad school, um, both in terms of the the course and subject material, but also I know that you just mentioned Barbara, like teachers that you had, or um, what 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 kind of stands out in that era for you? So, coming from a non um, communication sciences and disorders background. I really felt like I needed to put a lot of work into it. Um, so I remember the first semester um, really like busting my butt to make sure I was doing well in my, in my classes and um, just feeling like there is a little bit of catch up if you come from outside of the typical um, trajectory. But um, the CUNY Graduate Center is interesting because they don't require prerequisites. So we get more um, people that are coming from non-traditional backgrounds. So there were Three of the 10 of us from my cohort um, weren't communication sciences disorders undergrads. And I think that actually is a big part of what makes CUNY special is because you get all of these differing perspectives and people, I, I think that is where you get a little bit more of the innovative thinking. Um, Dr. Weinstein definitely stuck out in my head um, and really uh, she's pretty magnetic in the classroom because she really questions the status quo always. And she is, uh, she is, um, you know, sort of relentless in her pursuit of audiology to get better. And she really is just so well-versed specifically on um, geriatric care and gerontology. Um, and that was the population of interest for me um, from the beginning and remains one of my, one of my biggest interests. I, I definitely, um, feel drawn to that population. Um, and Dr. Weinstein does a lot of work in that, in that realm and um, in healthcare at large, you know, she does a lot of interesting research with PCPs, uh, gerontologists, ERs, um, and is really sort of crossing that line and making audiology more relevant to um, healthcare at large. Yeah, I mean, um, you recently interviewed Barbara Dr. Weinstein um, on This Week in Hearing. And we'll come back to like podcasting and, and brand building and stuff like that, because that's another topic I want to talk about with you later on. But um, I just, there was a lot of really interesting things in that conversation. And um, first of all, I thought it was really neat how, you know, she was talking about you and, and how she's proud. She's like, I, it's like almost like being a proud parent, like seeing my students go on to do these things. And the thought I had was like, it, it must be pretty cool to, um, you know, in a small in a small field like audiology to quite literally learn from one of the legends. And um, I'm just curious, like I had mentioned to you before we started recording, like one of the things I, I really want to do this uh, this season, I guess, is um, try to like better understand who some of these really influential people are. And so I thought like this would be a good opportunity to maybe go into Dr. Weinstein um, and her work and, and share like in your own words, what she, what, how you sort of think about her contribution and, and the way of, of how much she's influenced this whole field. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'll just add also um, 
Carol Silverman um, was my advisor um, in for my AUD, and I, that's who I did my research with. And um, I'll talk a little bit about her. First, I'll start with uh, Dr. Okay. Weinstein. Um, but yeah, Barbara Weinstein, for people that don't know, and this is hard for me to get a pulse on, I feel like I've gotten a better pulse of the national landscape of audiology in the last year or so, uh, really through my work at Tuned, where I'm talking to audiologists across the country, I feel like I have a better grip of um, how audiology across the, the nation works. In New York, um, CUNY is is very dominant. CUNY alums are very prevalent, and therefore the influence of CUNY professors is very prevalent because everyone was trained by them. Um, so um, for those that don't know Dr. Weinstein, um, she was the co-author of the HHIA, the Hearing Health and um, Hearing Handicap Inventory for Adults, and then it's been modified for the elderly, for significant others, translated into dozens of languages. It's the most commonly used uh, measurement. Even if you don't know the name, that is always the one that's built into websites, right? That's how everyone is evaluating subjective hearing difficulties. So that is um, usually what people think of her as. Um, they, they sort of think that's synonymous with her. If you really look at her work, even before that, she was one of the first people to link hearing loss with social isolation and depression. And she really, again, with these like social and emotional implications to hearing loss that wasn't really looked into until then, she really brought to the forefront. And now that has become so common in all of our conversations about hearing loss and really our understanding of hearing loss. And one of the biggest motivators when we're talking to the general public of why you should be concerned about your hearing, it now seems so common sense that, of course, it's how you connect and socialize with people. So it would affect your ability to, um, you know, it would affect your social and emotional well-being. But that at the somebody obviously had to come up with that finding first, and she was the one that did it. Um, so that is sort of the beginning of it. And then since then, she's she really has just really banged out research after research her entire career. I think she was also the first one when COVID hit to um, show the effects of masks on speech signals. Like she really, she just beats everyone to the punch somehow um, in a in a very like groundbreaking way. Um, I'll just mention, uh, so Carol Silverman, again, was my um, advisor. She's who I did my research with and we did it on third party disability, which I think is really fascinating. The effect of hearing loss or any health condition on loved ones. Um, and that how you see it, you know, the person with hearing loss, again, back to Dr. Weinstein's research, we know about the social isolation and the depression and the reduced quality of life and all of those outcomes. If you look at the significant others, same exact things apply to them. And then you see a reversal of it with hearing intervention or audiologic care. Um, so that was, so Dr. Silverman was a very big figure for me as well um, in shaping my thinking. And she, um, I've actually, the, the, the course that I teach at uh, CUNY now, Anatomy and Physiology, was originally taught by her. And when she retired, I took it over. Um, so we have been um, very close and she's definitely a big influence on, on my career and really a big advocate for, for my success. Everybody needs a cheerleader. I love that. It's super cool. And Carol Silverman, that's now going to be the next person that I start to Google and research and, and yep. try to find different presentations and stuff that she's done. Um, because I, it is, it's like this, just one big learning process of who's who, who contributed what, like what areas of expertise, 
um, are attributed to who. And it's really interesting for me. It's like a giant jigsaw puzzle. Um, and so, you know, I just thought that, um, you know, with your talk with, with Barbara, um, a lot of the conversation, you know, what really stood out to me was this whole idea of like kind of being like cross discipline and, and getting the message out from just audiology to a lot of these other allied medical professionals. And she seemed to really embody that. And I think you're a big proponent of this too. And it seems like we've kind of in a way been beating our heads against the wall, um, as an industry of, of like, how can we increase the adoption of people wanting to treat their hearing loss? And we're kind of coming at it with all the same things over and over and over again. And I think that what's really encouraging is it seems like there's more awareness of this idea, like the, the most impactful way that you can really get the word out is by looping in like the physicians and helping them to understand the benefit of this. And, and, um, Barbara said something really interesting where she was like, you know, I think the masks during the pandemic, like really kind of was a, a giant aha moment for a lot of people of realizing how frustrating it can be, how much that we're probably all way more reliant on lip reading than we even are aware. And so I just thought that, you know, there's so many different ways that we can try to tackle this thing, um, you know, both like macro level, but, but on a personal level. And, and that stands out to me as like a really, uh, a really I don't know, aspirational goal is like, how can we, how can we make that message resonate with folks that are really the front line of defense? And I mean, I know like Nick Reed and, and the Johns Hopkins team with the achieve trial, like they're trying to get it so that you get your hearing tested in your annual physical, like, why isn't that a thing? And mm-hmm. and so what can we do to like make those part of the broader message? And I think we need cohesion as an industry to like, make that message feel like more of a, a cohesive, like consolidated thing. Um, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on this. Cause it does seem to be, I think one of the, you know, I, I think it's a really big macro trend right now is figuring out how can we get these, th- these like learnings that we know in this industry to become more mainstream. Yeah. And like back to my initial appeal to audiology with all these big picture questions, like, these are some of them and you know we're still trying to figure out the answers to it i was and these were the same questions that i was thinking about 10 years ago all of us have been thinking about this for a long time i i think you're absolutely right that um audiology is a very very perplexing profession right it's like we are in some ways like the best kept secrets of healthcare it's like we just keep giving we're just on this little hamster wheel of giving ourselves like affirmative messages and building this great uh, body of research, but all internally. And we we're missing the link of like the public outreach. And I've said it on, I probably said in the Dr. Weinstein conversation, I feel like I say it all the time that audiology has a major PR problem. You know, people truly don't even know what an audiologist is, let alone why you would want to see one or why it's important to see one. And that goes with um, even the healthcare providers. So one thing that Dr. Weinstein and I talked about in that podcast was the study from Cleveland Clinic about the poor hearing healthcare literacy of PCPs and nurse practitioners. So I think we, of course, need to figure out how to get to patients earlier. 
And a big way to do it is through PCPs or, you know, we go to where their behaviors are already leading them. People are likely to follow up with their primary um, because that really, they control everything from there, all the referrals. So how do we improve the message to them? And that is a real head scratching question of, of how do we do that? We've tried a couple of different things, but I do think you're right that like a uniform effort um, is important. And that's something that's always plagued audiology. Why does a 13,000, um, you know, provider profession have three different um, professional organizations? That's just bizarre to me. Mm -hmm. um, and we're really, um, we're, we're going to really lose a lot of bargaining power if we remain, you know, segmented like that. Um, so I don't have a great answer yet. Um, my more approachable way to do it or how I've been thinking of it recently is actually tackling it from the um, the consumer perspective. You know, have the have it more patient driven than provider driven. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's really hard to get things through to providers. Everyone has their blind spots and, um, you know, physicians have blind spots and they feel very confident in, in their training sometimes. So it's hard for them to uh, feel, you know, like they can collaborate with other professionals. But what if the uh, motivation comes from the patients? Like what right. if they just get patient after patient coming in and, and asking, I saw this thing in the newspaper, or I read this article, or I saw this video, I want to look into my hearing. Maybe then the message will get through. It's, you know, you have to give the patients what they want. Um, so maybe that's the best way to do it is sort of my new line of thinking. Well, it's really interesting because I think that means that there needs to be really more collaboration between something like an HLAA and a AAA, right? Like I, yeah. I do think that there's a pretty big disconnect um, between the provider and the patient. Like obviously the providers are working on an individual basis, but from a unified governing body, if you will, the two, I don't know what the relationship is, but it doesn't seem to be like there's a lot of... Um, uh, I don't know, cohesion. Yeah. And HLAA is a powerhouse. Like mm -hmm. they are, they are quoted in every single story that's related to hearing. Like they are everywhere. And a big part of it is because they have so much numbers. You know, we're talking about almost, you know, I think the latest um, estimate was 48 million Americans with some degree of hearing loss. Like they have numbers and they have a lot of sway, like lobbying sway too. And I, I think you're absolutely right. There's a disconnect. Like I, I um, actually, again, bring it back to Barbara Weinstein. She <laughs> recommended that we all go to an HLAA meeting when we were a student. And it is eye opening. If an mm -hmm. audiologist hasn't been to an HLAA meeting, you have to go to one um, because they're it's like a a wonderful field study of um, really getting a pulse of what people with hearing loss actually want. And I think audiologists would be shocked with how dissatisfied most people with hearing loss are with their providers. Um, and that's like a, a tough thing to hear. You know, you have to really look in the mirror and think about what you're doing and if you're doing enough or how much of this is systemic. You know, it raises a lot of questions, mm -hmm. but there should absolutely be more consideration for the patient perspective because also most audiologists don't have hearing loss. So um having that perspective really is crucial for patients. But I, I couldn't agree more. And, um, the, the, 
what you said earlier about, you know, having the patient be the one that's kind of the proponent for the professional is that's, that's the, I think the motivation for why this should be, because I think to your point, like you're maybe barking up the wrong tree in a sense, if you think that you're going to get like widespread buy-in from the physician, if it's coming at the behest of like the professional to professional, because they might perceive that as, of course, we all want to practice all these different best practices within each of our purviews. But when it comes at the behest of the patient and the patient's the one that's saying you need to, you need to, you know, um, be equipped in your actual, you know, like brick and mortar location for communication disorders. Like you need to have some sort of amplification, like a loop, or you need to have a pocket talker or something like that, where you can have, um, uh, um, like be able to be facilitating, um, something for that kind of person, especially as we have an aging population. Like, I just think that that makes a ton of sense of having it come from the, it needs to like almost happen organically at the grass level, patient after patient after patient. In my mind, that seems a really realistic possibility of how change could be broadly implemented and how mm-hmm. you could have that mind sh- mindset shift. But again, it, it has to then mean that the professionals and all of the bodies, these three different organizations that represent these 13,000 professionals or whatever it is that, you know, there needs to be a unified message of like, this is, this is something that we're trying to advocate for on, on you as the patient's behalf. And there needs to be, I think, a lot more collaboration between the two. Yeah. And I think there's, I think there's like a fundamental argument happening within audiology of, um, you know, are we medical providers or are we healthcare providers or, you know, like how do we even refer to ourselves or view ourselves? So a lot of, you know, you get the audiologists that are very white coat doctor, very formal, and those are the kinds of people that, of course, want to collaborate with other providers. You know, mm-hmm. they want to meet with the ENTs, the PCPs, in uh, really endocrinologists, nephrologists. You could you know, you could go on and on with all the comorbidities. Um, of essentially, it's every specialist. But um, and then there's the other section of audiologists that are far more um viewing themselves as like collaborators or not so like official of um, not doctor knows best. It's really more proponents of the patient-centered care, which is Mm -hmm. a giant trend we're seeing across healthcare. And I think that's why eventually I hypothesize um, healthcare professionals will have to give in to what the patients want because patients should be to a certain extent, as long as it's not threatening themselves, should be able to drive their own care. And I think we do a pretty good job of it. Again, talking about certain sections of audiology because there isn't a ton of uniformity about letting patients sort of lead their journey. Um, but then other providers might not might not have the same approach. Um, so I do think there's a lot of potential there for it. Um, so I want to pivot a little bit and because I think this will kind of continue the conversation on, but I think this is a good time to segue to what you're now doing with your career. Um, so you had mentioned you're kind of like you're an adjunct professor, which is really, really cool. Um, 
And then also, you know, so you were, if I recall, working as an audiologist within an ENT clinic, and then you branched off and you're doing your own thing now. So you have the role at Tuned, um, and then you're also doing like what I envision is kind of like the newest version of what private practice audiology looks like. Um, Is that a fair way to describe that? (laughs) Yeah. And I think it is relevant to point out what I was doing previously, because it definitely is. That's what led me. You know, you, it's hard to talk about totally. where you're at currently, unless you talk about where you were previously. Yeah. And yeah, working in very traditional healthcare settings in New York City, um, where audiologists are not usually the stakeholders or decision makers, you know, healthcare is corporate America now. Um, and then working through a pandemic, in New York City, in that healthcare system, it was, um, it, it, and I am a sort of out of the box thinker. So I just really was itching to really just sort of blow out of it and do mm-hmm. my own thing. Um, so tuned is something that I've been working with for, uh, two years now. And, um, that's been totally different experience for me. I've never worked with a startup before. It's been fascinating to, see an idea really come to fruition and really help build something and that we're really rethinking the delivery of um, hearing healthcare, Um, you know, really harnessing teleaudiology and thinking about, again, how do we reach different patient bases that wouldn't traditionally come into a clinic? So that's been a very fun project for me and something that I was doing even while I was at my previous job. Um, And then this new venture where I'm of working for myself um, has been really exciting because I do think it's a very, it's uncharted territory for audiology, but I'm a big believer that this can work. And if it works and we can create a blueprint and I'm not the only one doing this, I've, I've connected with at least five other audiologists across the country that are doing similar versions of a uh, teleaudiology and concierge practice together. and I think if we can really break, you know, uh, break that, uh, break that down and get a solid formula to it, that's going to lead to this big wave of entrepreneurship within audiology. And um, to me, that seems like something that needs to happen for the profession to really thrive in the future. We need more um, independent clinics. Uh, we need more audiologists as owners. I would love to see more female-dominated practices and more women in audiology getting into getting into this and you know we're in a recession and hard times so the best way to do it is uh through virtual care and concierge care where you have really low startup costs so that has been a a big again puzzle to figure out of how Mm. do i market this how do i get people to understand it and through that thinking and and going off of the need i think for better patient education that's where i sort of really done a deep dive into social media and mm-hmm. doing TikTok and um, Instagram and really thinking about how do you convince people that hearing healthcare matters? And I've purposely barely talked about hearing aids, um, done about 200 videos on TikTok, had about 75 posts on Instagram, maybe. Uh, I probably two are hearing aid related um, because to me, that's such an important point to get across to the public is that we are not synonymous with hearing aids. Um, so that that's where I'm at currently. 
it is very much uncharted territory and going off of a whole lot of hunches. Um, and I think this is one of those times that it's good to be a little naive where it's like, I have no idea if this is going to work, but I also think I have the willpower to just like make it work. Um, which is and I like exciting. becoming a new parent. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Add that to it. It's like, when's, when's the perfect time to go out on a solo venture? Right. Don't come back from your maternity leave. <laughs> um, so that that's been a big motivator too, where it's, you know, being a parent changes how you think about your time and your life and, you know, what makes you happy. And this is the version of myself I want to be for my son. And I think a lot of audiologists can relate to that message too, um, where they're put in tough positions of, you know, is this job um congruent with my life you know is it is it all going to add up um and especially when you add a family to it like can i even afford to work full-time or can i have more flexibility than that yeah gosh there's uh it's it's just like there's so many different things there about how all roads kind of like led to where you are from a freaking pandemic in new york city i mean no offense i can't think of a place i would like not want to live during that. Um, I'm with and, you. and you know, it's like New York is like, was, it's so cool. It's such an awesome place. So it's, you know, I, I can just only imagine like the, that part of your life. Um, but you know, I'm sure that that was a huge, uh, influence on, on cutting the cord and like doing what you're doing. And, and so this is what I really want to get into now is like this first formative part of what you've done, because I think that there are probably some people listening right now that are really inspired by you and maybe thinking along the same lines, but man, it is, there is like night and day difference between thinking and having those thoughts and actually doing it. And so can you talk through maybe like where your head was at when you were first getting started from the most basic things? Like, how do you even set yourself up as a company? Like, what, what did you like, how did you like teach yourself this to, to like legitimize your business? What were those early days? Like, it sounds like you've kind of got the ball rolling. So you're, but like, how did you get like your first customers, your first patients? What have you learned? I guess is what I'm asking over the first call it year or however long you've been doing this new Kathleen Wallace venture. I have definitely learned a lot and I'm sure any business owner out there can, can relate to you get a crash course in absolutely everything. And I have been um, getting, uh, teaching myself essentially a whole lot of skills. The first of which was how to be like a social media person. I'd never been on TikTok before. Um, and it was suggested to me to try TikTok Um over some other social media platforms. And I've now added um, Instagram. And I think that was a good first step because it, again, helps you hone in on your message and your delivery. TikTok is not for the faint of heart. The comment section can really be something else sometimes. (laughs) So, you know, it really is a very good training to developing thick skin and then also making sure that, you know, your, your message is on point and your delivery is on point. And um, that's sort of become the cornerstone of what what Kathleen Wallace AUD is. It's totally based on um, patient education, where um, my goal is to 
develop um, informed and empowered consumers who can navigate hearing healthcare with confidence. So I almost view myself more as like a consultant than um, an audiologist even. Like I think diagnostics are sort of on the, the back burner a little bit for me. It's very much um, serving that, that if, sort of filling that gap where I don't care if I ever do an audio again, you know, I, but I can take an audio, I can counsel a patient extensively, I can break down all of the jargon of, okay, you heard about this, 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 and this, isn't it so confusing that this manufacturer calls their top of the line a 90 and this manufacturer is a 440 and this one's a one and, mm-hmm. you know, and getting through all of that jargon and leaning into this whole Dr. Google era of people want to do research before they make a decision. And when you talk about $7,000 hearing aids, potentially, then you really need to make, you really need to do your homework before making a decision. I think that's something that really resonates with people. So I have purposely gone like very much unbundled where um, for a lot of them, I'm not doing the audio and I'm not doing the dispense. I'm doing the in-between where it's truly me being an unbiased expert Mm -hmm. in hearing healthcare and hearing aids and then them making their own decision whether it's going to walmart or cvs costco or a private practice Um, but at least they feel like they have the tools needed to actually go through hearing healthcare because audiology is a little bizarre it's a it's a strange specialty and there are a lot of things that we know as professionals that patients don't know and when you're on tiktok you realize that we wildly overestimate the public knowledge of hearing issues. Like they don't even, they don't even know that tinnitus is the name for ringing in your ears. Mm-hmm. Or if they do, they don't know it's pronounced tinnitus. So we really, really, really have to break it down uh, more so. And I think that that is sort of where I'll be living for a little bit. This this gray area in between which has again been a wonderful change of pace from a diagnostic role in an ENT clinic where it was very much audio driven, a lot of time in the sound booth and then um, hearing aids and um, not always having time for these in-between conversations. Yeah, It's really interesting. And I like how like you sort of segmented it from like you have the diagnostics and then you have the hearing aid fitting and then you have like this kind of period that's in between or the space that's in between. And um, I guess my question is, have you found there to be a demand for this? Um, Like, are you finding that the, you know, people that you're talking to, that this is something that they're really receptive to? Um, And then like, is there a business model behind this? So for full transparency, it is a little bit of a difficult pitch um, mm-hmm. for some people. Like I think teleaudiology in general, it's hard for people to understand how you could see an audiologist virtually. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when you take the diagnostic element out of it, they they do get it because it's just a conversation. Yeah. Um, so I do think there is a demand for that segment. Um, it's a little tough with the marketing to make sure you're getting to the right segment. Um, so I've been trying out a couple of different things. You know, am I trying to go to them directly or am I trying to go to them through loved ones and really sort of harness the third party disability element to it? And that's where like TikTok and Instagram comes into play, where 
they might not be on TikTok and Instagram, right. but their son or daughter yep. or, you know, loved one is. And are Smart. is that person bothered enough or worried enough about their dad or mom's hearing that they would um, sort of be a big, you know, proponent of this? And I do think that the fact that it is totally removed from both the sale and the diagnostics, um, I think it lowers the threshold of sort of, you know, moving forward with it yep. because you, it's a lot more palatable to just have a one-off appointment, right? Mm -hmm. There's like no long-term commitment. So they could take whatever and do whatever they want with the information I'm giving them. And I wouldn't necessarily know. So I'm, I'm hoping that that will translate. My very first patient that I saw um, actually came to me through TikTok. Her wife made an appointment for her after seeing me on TikTok. So, uh, so there's still a lot to be determined about, you know, are these hunches correct? And this is part of, you know, introducing a new service delivery model. I'm more confident in the concierge element. I think that's far, uh, that's less of a stretch for people. Yeah. Um, especially when you have a full portable audiometer and all of that, that that's an easier um, pitch for people. The virtual care and this consultant element are so new um, that it's going to take some tweaking, I think, and some time for people to warm up to the idea. Um, so like with regard to the consultative approach, you know, I think this is becoming really pronounced or it will just increasingly become more pronounced as the OTC side of things really matures and not just OTC managed care too. Um, because I, I think that I don't like foresee there being an imminent collapse of like the revenue models of, of the brick and mortar locations. They're just going to kind of, I think get eroded. And so what remains? Well, there actually is still like this really important role, which is this consultative thing. So, you know, I've heard a million different takes on OTC and the pros and the cons and all this. And like, with regard to the professional's role in it, I just don't really see any role other than being consultative. Mm -hmm. And that's a really important role. And I think that we've kind of like, I think broadly speaking as an industry, just sort of been dismissive of that because it's, it's not like cookie cutter, like it just fits into what we're, what we've all known. And mm -hmm. so, so much of this, I feel like it's just going to be kind of like the, the transition, the transitional pain almost of like getting back to like, okay, so how do you, how do you like frame this for the patient so that if they're presented with an option where you say like, look, you have an, you have your, your options basically boil down to, you can do it yourself you can go the prescription hearing aid route, which might be overkill. So if you're kind of in the middle and you want to, you want a device that's in the price range of an OTC or something that's like a managed care benefit, um, how can you have that, but also have the expertise that comes along with the professional? And I think this is where the professional, like by and large needs to, I think, figure out like what what this looks like, because I do think that if there is going to be a play in this over-the-counter hearing aid space um, and in the, you know, kind of the future of this, this whole like dispensing of, of technology, I think that it has to be around that like added value. And that mm -hmm. value to me is your expertise. Like, you know, more about 
the communication disorders and the tips and the strategies and all of the like ancillary technology that you can be using. And, and just like, you're a wealth of information for these people. So it, it's a lot of like, I think what we all kind of already know, which is like, okay, so therefore you got to kind of unbundle things to the point to where you can bill for your time appropriately. It just feels like it's all kind of culminating to a head and you're out in front of this. So you're actually kind of already seeing it. And, and what I'm kind of trying to get to is like this whole notion of I'm going to bill you for 30 minutes of my time. What are your patients um, sort of like responses, like both going into the meeting and then afterwards, do you find that they're like, that was well worth my time and money? So um, I think uh, just to uh, one of the other points that you made, um, I think you're totally right that the audiologists are sort of, I don't know why we're being hesitant to really embrace that the product is our brain, you know, and mm -hmm. that's a big part of how I designed, um, you know, what I'm doing is that um, I wanted um I wanted it to be something that I could adapt with over time. And how do you adapt? Like you're the locus of control. Like I am the, I am the product and, and it sounds a little like egotistical, but it's true, <laughs> yeah. you know, so I can control the amount of value I'm giving someone because nothing frustrates me more in the audiology world than like when you're doing a fitting and the software won't open or the hearing aid for some reason just isn't working. And I hated always having these other things that were sort of controlling how well an appointment's going to go. And I, and um, so I think this return where the, the value is you um, does allow you to be very consistent with the, um, the, with the value that you're providing and how um, successful these appointments can be. And then the fact that um, when you're focused on patient education, again, the patient is driving what you do. So right now they want to talk about OTCs because that is the, the hot thing right now. But that might change, you know, that the 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 paper that just came out yesterday with one billion um kids were 12 to 32 year olds, I think was the age range um, at risk for noise induced hearing loss. Maybe all of a sudden it will become safe listening habits. But when you're the the product, you can pivot um and keep up with it. Yeah, good point. So that was a, a part of how we're shaping it. Um what was the other part of the question? <laughs> oh, I was just saying like, you know, you're doing this already. So, yeah. you know, you're, you're seeing people and you're pres presumably you're billing them for your time. Um, so I'm, I'm saying like, what has that experience been like? Do you find that people walk away from that feeling like that was well worth the, whatever amount that they paid for? So, so far, People have not. People that have booked have not had an issue with um, the price, and I think you know that speaks to the kind of person that would be interested in this sort of service. You know, and this is where I don't know if there's a geographic influence. I think people in New York City fully understand like what a consultant is, um, or like an advisor, or whatever word you want to use. Like people like to go to professionals for things, and I think people definitely understand. Um, when you think about it as, well, am I going to get $7,000 hearing aids or $1,500 hearing aids from Costco or an $800 over-the-counter hearing aid, it, when you're talking about that much of a money swing, the, my hourly rate is a drop in the bucket if that could save you thousands of dollars. 
So I think some people are thinking of it like that. Um, and this is where like me, um, you know, and the expertise really being the product, I am trying to build it out as much as possible to make it very um, educational. And again, expecting that this is a one-off appointment. So my goal is to make them fully independent where they like, feel like they have all the tools to never need me again or not need me until they reach that next level of their hearing loss where they've outgrown over-the-counter hearing aids and then they want to talk about prescription hearing aids or something like that. Um, so I think the fact that it's a nice like tidy bow at the end of the appointment and um, giving a ton of um, it, sort of um, augmenting the appointment with other materials, supporting materials, um, does very much make it worth it to them. But it is, it it's a little uncomfortable for an audiologist. We're not trained to find value in our time. We are, we have, you know, are so trained on it being tied to a device um, or going through insurance and never having to talk money with, uh, with a patient. So that is definitely a very different mindset to have where this is more of like a business mindset, transactional almost, which might turn some people off, but that's what people want. Um, and again, like that's the driver of what you provide. And, and there's almost a weird uh, irony. I don't know if that's the right word, but, you know, so you said that it's more of a business mindset. However, there's such a different perception, I think, by the consumer, because when you're a consumer and you have, like you said, the the, the consumers of today are so much more well-educated on what options exist. So they're going to be coming in already relatively skeptical of what they're getting into and if there's a better deal. And so you're there's like that inherent tension, I think, in the current model. Whereas with yours, it's a upfront expectation of look, I'm I have no dog in the fight. I'm I am a objective resource for you to try to get you to the right solution for you. So yeah, there's going to be a you know, like a concrete upfront cost in order to even get through the door, mm -hmm. get through the computer screen. Um, but, but, but it's an upfront expectation, I think. And there's nothing, there's no, there's nothing that like comes down the line that might be, even if it's not a surprise, it's that, uh, I think this is part of the issue that a lot of professionals have. A lot of dispensing professionals have is this, it's it's not fair and it's not fair that they're sort of almost perceived as like in the eyes of the consumer are you bait and switching me you know are you is there is there something that i'm not well aware of here what's going on why am i not getting the best deal why can't i get these things for half the price at costco what are you doing that's so different than that and so you're always on your back foot playing defense of like but i'm i'm adding value and i'm doing all these different things and all that and so part of me looks at what you're doing as probably like if I were an audiologist, I would be thinking of this as a giant relief in the sense that, yeah, there is more of a business mentality that comes with it. Like there might be some people that are put off or turned off by, I can get a free hearing test from this clinic down the street or whatever. Um, but it's like, I just think that having the, the ability to just set the expectation and then know that they're, you've sort of diffused the tension, I have to imagine it's a totally different kind of an interaction with the patient than the brick and mortar traditional experience. 
Yeah, and they uh, there's so much buy-in, and they usually come. You know, they're highly motivated. They come with questions. You know, they know they have specific things on their mind that they want to um, accomplish in that appointment. So it it is very different for sure. Um, and I hope more people consider it because I do think that it is addressing the weakness of the current audiology delivery. Some of it's in our control. Some of it, some of it isn't. But that uh, the lack of trust that the public has in our profession is sort of what I'm feeding off of. Um, and any audiologist can do this. So I, I, I hope that more people do consider it. And, you know, we can definitely leverage over the counter hearing aids right now at a minimum. Totally. Um, so changing gears a little bit, I, I do want to get into, um, you know, not, social media from the standpoint of kind of like personal brand building. And obviously you're using it very effectively for, to, to help grow your business. Um, so that there's that side of it. But the other thing that I think is really cool and inspiring that I've seen you do is, you know, and I think it's a testament of like why, I think it, it's really important to at least give it this a fair shake of of creating content, posting content, um, and and just kind of being public. Is that in the span of time that I've known you, um, which is only a couple of years, I've seen you, you know, kind of emerge on social media. You've you know been on a couple of podcasts, and then we were just at the American Academy Doctors American Doctors ADA. ADA. I can never remember the actual full name of it. Academy of Doctors of Audiology, I think. Um, I so. so anyway, I I was at that show with you and you were on like three different panels. And I just think it's really cool that I think that this, it's like, you know, you got to kind of start somewhere and you get the snowball and then you can like roll it, roll it, roll it. And then you can push it down the hill. And it just seems like you've totally been a poster child of this, of, of um, getting that momentum going to where you can just kind of like parlay it onto the next thing. And I thought that was really neat. And so I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts of, of kind of this um, trajectory that you've been on where it, it, you know, speaking to whether you agree if, if like getting on a podcast and kind of getting your feet wet that way, and then using that to like position yourself to go and speak at uh, an in-person event like that. I mean, do you, do you see these as being uh, a good stepping stone, like online content creation as a way to create a, a, a brand for yourself that you can then use to, you know, basically cite as, um, you know, look at the previous work that I've done so that you have legitimacy. Cause I think for young people, we were kind of saddled with like the imposter phenomenon of like, am I qualified to be on a panel with some of the people like that you were, I personally would say, yes, you absolutely are. But I have to imagine there was some self-doubt of like, am I really qualified? So I think that particularly as young people, like you got to start somewhere. And I think that podcasts and just like online content, broadly speaking, is a really great way to get your foot in the door. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're totally right. Um, I started with LinkedIn. Um, I think I've always done it. I've always loved LinkedIn. It's always been my preferred social media. So the fact that now I'm on like TikTok and Instagram is fun. <laughs> um, 
but really in the beginning of the pandemic again like out of boredom or angst or whatever the motivator was like I really started getting into a solid rhythm of posting pretty often on LinkedIn and um, I did a post on LinkedIn um, for International Women's Day that Deanne Rudden really liked and that's what led to the first podcast appearance so there absolutely is a snowball effect and then Shout you're out getting Deanne Rudden uh, the the hearing journal podcast that was a really good episode on um on like all things gender and the yeah gender gap in the industry and pink collar work that was a term I had never heard before but anyway I didn't mean to interject go on yeah and and one thing that we talked about there and and you just hinted at it is um the imposter syndrome and that that very much applies to women that's how we are naturally wired you know that's how we're trained in society we're not naturally wired that way um and that there is honest overconfidence in men that's a, a legitimate term they found in studies and that women undershoot their abilities and um, that even the word expert has become very gendered, um, that men are more likely to be considered experts in things or proclaim themselves as experts and women don't do that. So the fact that that was what I was talking about on my first podcast um, was certainly set the tone that that's, you know, if that's what I'm talking about, then we have to sort of follow through with this. And I, you know, I was tempted to not do the podcast. And then I'm like, wait, I, I need to say that I'm an expert at this. Mm -hmm. And I need to do this podcast. That's what I that's what the research actually says. So um, it definitely does snowball into each other. And I absolutely had the thought at ADA too. I did a panel with Don Hyman, the current president of ADA, um, and Gail Whitelaw, and then there, and then me, and we're you know at very different points in our careers, um, but you know having the confidence that your viewpoint and perspective is important and relevant is super important. Um, so I do think that getting across a couple of different platforms has been helpful because you also see what works on each platform, like LinkedIn, very different vibe than Instagram mm-hmm. or TikTok or podcasts, you know, professional podcasts and going, you know, sort of um, pinballing through them is um, a very interesting exercise. But I do think that in general, people have been very, I think audiologists in general, and maybe, and probably a big part of it is because we're majority women. um, Audiologists in general do have an inferiority complex. And I don't think we're great at advocating for ourselves, which goes back to why, we have such a small, um, or, you know, we're just a blip on the radar in healthcare because we've been horrible at advocating for our importance. And um, it all just feeds into each other. So um, it's been an interesting exercise to really try to be a voice, uh, like a reliable, trustworthy voice on TikTok in particular, that's where most of it has been, um, for the general public. And um, there's definitely an appetite for it. And like what inspired it even to begin with was just the fact that so many people ask ear questions in in everyday life situations. So really harnessing that and going off of that to, you know, making it full on TikTok videos and taking questions from strangers. But I do think there needs to be more audiologists sort of proclaiming their expertise and that it's not a bad thing to do at all. So I um I had to leave ADA the the days that you did the panels with 
uh, Dawn and Gail. Um, how did those go? What did you all talk about? I caught the bulk of the presentation that you did on the at the mobile audiology pre-conference workshop, which was absolutely fantastic. Um, there's so much that I want to talk to you about, but I know that we're kind of like coming close to an hour already. Um, so I'm just curious though, since I didn't get a chance and I haven't had a chance to talk to you about it, what were those panels like that you did um, at ADA? So those ones were, so the overall theme of ADA, right, was all about Casey Compton's book, um, Fix This, Fix this Next um, for Healthcare Providers. So ADA was formatted to be very, you know, action item oriented. And the panel that we were doing was all about how to analyze different service delivery models and implement them. So um, it was mostly based off of my thought process of how I came, my portion of it was about how um, I came to uh, design my practice the way I have, where it's going to be focused on patient education, it's going to be um, virtual and concierge, um, and that to me, the the way I came up with that service was that I think the lack of public education is a root cause for, for so many other things. So why don't we attack the root cause and try to move the needle and get to more people? Um, the general flow of you know how you get to it is like, is there a problem that needs to be solved? Am I the person to solve it? Can I solve it in the way that people want it to be solved? Um, and how do I do it essentially? You know, and these that's a big part of Casey Compton's book is taking very common sense things and things that we all do naturally and putting names to it. So it's just sort of walking through the actual steps of it and that there are so many ways that we can rethink how we're delivering care. For me, it's virtual and concierge, but it doesn't need to be. It could be asynchronous. It could be putting, um, you know, downloadable content out there like webinars or eBooks or something. It could be Tended, it could be expanding your scope of practice or way that you're delivering it, essentially. Um, and that, again, we're 13,000 professionals. So, like, there is just so much work that can be done. And that was a big part of the telehealth talk was when over 50% of counties in the United States don't have an audiologist and there's 25,000 people per one audiologist, there's plenty of work to go around and we need to get more creative about yeah. how we can reach more ears. Well, and then just going off, like piggybacking off that specific point, you know, it's just crazy to me that there is, um, you know, any kind of scarcity mindset in this industry when you're spot on where it's like, there's so much latent demand that's just not being tapped into because we aren't as an industry, I think being very conducive to that demand. I mean, and, and and I think this is what's going to be really fascinating. And part of the reason why I get so excited to talk to people like you is I have a, I have a general sense of like where things are going, but it's awesome to talk to somebody that's like physically doing this stuff on the front lines because, you know, like telehealth is a good example of something where there are probably things that would surprise people in every type of, um, every kind of medical professional, like, like the things that would surprise you in terms of how much more feasible and conducive some of these things are online. And then things that maybe as ex you have the experience and you realize you're like, there isn't really a great 
replacement for like the in-person element. Um, and, 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 but at least I think squaring those things away and being able to, to, um, you know, say truthfully, like, this is the limitations of this format. And therefore there does have to be triaging of sorts or, or something like that for this specific kind of aspect, but to just use broad strokes and say, there's no way that there's, you know, there's no viability to teleaudiology or, or something like that, I think is wildly dismissive. And we know that like technology is just going to make this stuff feel more and more enabled. So I think what's cool and what's my big takeaway from this conversation is like, first of all, it's really cool to hear somebody young and aspirational, like just truly seizing life by the horns and you're doing it. And I think that's extremely notable. So tip of the cap, uh, cheers on that. Um, but I, I think the other thing is like, this doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing. Like, I think that what the model of the future really will look like will be taking elements of all these different things. Like you could, I, I could see the clinic of the future really being like, if you do have a brick and mortar location, you have that. And then maybe there is a mobile element to your practice and a virtual element to your practice, because you know that that's going to allow for you to be just more viable and sustainable into the future and taking these things that we perceive right now, I think broadly as threats and turning them into just opportunities. Um, because, you know, if, if over the counter hearing aids are really successful, that implies that probably more people than ever are treating their hearing loss. And therefore there's more people than ever that, that could be seeking out your expertise, but it's figuring out how do you actually like meet that demand in a way that the patient wants it met. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think another big thing in, and you hinted at this is that you don't need to be everything to everyone, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's totally fine that um, there are limitations to what I'm doing. You know, it's just, I'm focusing on just a, a sliver, but the problem is that we have been so caught up as a profession in just the one sliver, really, when you look at the, enchi the entire picture and the penetration rate of just looking at one kind of patient and one kind of delivery model. And it, what makes me nervous is that if we don't harness this opportunity and really think how we can deliver care better and reach more people, um, is it going to no longer stay in the hands of audiologists exclusively? So the people that are really concerned about the, you know, the, the existential, you know, crisis of audiology um, should be huge proponents for, for thinking about new ways to do things. Cause that's how you stay relevant. Couldn't agree more. All right. So um, as we come to the close, you know, for anybody that's been listening, that's um, really dig in what you're, what you're talking about, where can people connect with you? Sounds like TikTok, Instagram, um, where, where can people get connected to you? Uh, so I am your doc of TikTok um, on <laughs> TikTok. Uh, I am Dr. Kathleen Wallace on Instagram. Kathleen Wallace, AUD on, um, on LinkedIn. Um, and then you can email me at Kathleen at KathleenWallaceAUD.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, it's really been awesome. It was awesome to meet you in person. Finally, it feels like there's so many people that I'm, 
uh, finally getting to meet in person after like the pandemic and just like all being online friends. And now we're in real life friends. So yeah. it's, it's really yeah. great. Um, but I've really learned a lot from you and I, I think it's just so cool what you're doing. So keep it up. I'm going to be excited to, um, hear all about what goes on with you, what goes on with, we didn't even really talk about tune today. We'll have to do another conversation down the line where we talk all about what's going on over there, because that's a really exciting space as well. Um, you know, a platform that's really enabling telehealth for this space. So, Kathleen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And thanks for everybody who tuned in here to the end. We'll chat with you next time. Thank you for having me. Cheers.